Welcome to Non-Obvious with Hugh Hanson. Well, welcome to uh, our podcast. Did you know the, did you know the name of our podcast? Uh, I barely remember it. Uh, on on record with Hugh Hanson. It's actually non-obvious. Non, oh yeah, it was a great name. Non-obvious with Hugh Hanson. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, and this is part two uh, with Dave Capos. Uh, who has so much good stuff to say, we really couldn't do it all in one in one session. And he very kindly has come back for a second session, uh, which we very much appreciate. So I'm going to ask you some questions. Uh, and if there's anything else you think it would be interesting, you can ask questions too. I mean, or rhetorical or whatever, but I'm going to start out with. All right. Um, UNIP, you meaning Y-O-U. Most IP lawyers and academics specialize in one or two areas of IP rather than all of them. And I imagine that was true with you, correct? Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I started out as an electrical engineering patent prosecuting attorney focusing on you know, disk drive technology and at the time databases and um, and and the physics that go into the components in disk drives. Okay. At what point, if ever, did you have a focus not just on patents but on something else? Or were you able to just keep patents throughout the whole? Well, you know, even from the beginning, the way, for me, the way um, IBM assigned its uh, IP attorneys, we handled all of the IP issues for a client set. So if a trademark issue came up, like at the time DB2, the relational database and IBM's um, major product in that area, DB2 was dealing with major trademark issues and the fear that it was going to become generic because people were using that term without attributing it as a trademark owned by IBM. And so I was one of the attorneys assigned to uh, deal with, with that issue for DB2. So I dealt with trademark issues, and of course there are you know myriad of copyright issues that come with computer software. We were dealing with all of those too. Okay. Um, what area of IP do you think is the most difficult for most people to understand or to analyze, if there is one? Well, I think definitely the patent area because it involves such an intricate set of rules such a large body of specialized law that's frequently counterintuitive or incomprehensible, frankly, to uh, people outside the field. And because it bridges between technological subject matter and legal subject matter, and I think between those characteristics, the patent law is very challenging. Well, it sounds like you're thinking also that patent law has its almost its own way of doing things. Uh, which is difficult, is a barrier to entry for some people to get into. Is it more, is it some of that, or is it just a technical that stops people from easily getting into well, it? Well, I think patent law does have its own way of doing things. It's got these doctrines that don't really exist in other areas of the law. I mean, think about, right, doctrine of equivalence, obviousness, inventive step, uh, novelty, statutory subject matter, um, written description, enablement, 
formerly best mode that we don't talk about much anymore. Inequitable conduct, that's a concept that doesn't really exist other than uh, than fraud, but we know inequitable conduct is distinct from fraud in the patent world. These are really challenging concepts, and they're to us as patent people, they're like, oh, of course, we know exactly what they mean. You'd ask anyone, any other great lawyer, and they'd say, what the heck are you guys talking about over there? Yeah. Uh, well, one thing I found is, and maybe not so much now as in the past, but patent lawyers had trouble like moving over into copyright. They'd be talking about it's not novel or something else like that and, and using those principles. And to some extent, then uh, uh, it would be better that they stayed in the area. <laughs> but today, I guess, is it still the situation that patent lawyers mostly just do patents? Uh, I think that's still the case in general. I think that's right. The the, the patent folks um, mostly specialize in that area, and whether they're doing litigation or now IPRs and PTO post grant practice, or you know prosecution or corporate advising, they generally tend to stay there. And would you say there's a hierarchy of uh, IP lawyers where patent lawyers are at the top? Yeah, you, that's, a, that's a more difficult question. I think it probably depends who you talk to. Um, if you're within the copyright bar and practicing, say, in some of the, the really tricky areas there, like film and media um, and, and music broadcast, oh, my God, there's a whole different ter- you know, uh, um, set of terms of art over there and principles uh, in, and it's it, it, copyright law, and in, in, I find in, in the film industry is yet its own animal distinct from anything else. Yeah, I found there. that of the three copyrights, patents, and trademarks, the patent people were sort of like the scientists on the hill in their labs. The copyright people were the literary intelligentsia. Both thought they were the smartest people on earth. Uh, and did not see the other co-equals at all. And then there was the trademark people, and, and it, it was basically fraternity row. Uh, <laughs> have a good time, good deal with people, good trial lawyers. So, in, in fact, I think of the three, the best trial lawyers are the ones in trademark mm-hmm. because they do it so much and have to do it yeah. so much, maybe. Uh, but, but what you know, one of the things about trademarks, I have found that... Um, uh, it could be dangerous, I think, for patent lawyers to try and casually practice in the trademark area because the trademark area is very much about touch. And uh, there's, a, there's a lot, I find it's almost like an art meets law in, in a way because there's a lot more to it than the you know technical understanding of the rules. And it can be a mistake Therefore, for a patent person or, or just anyone who's not really familiar with all the spin in the trademark area to try and get over in there and give advice. Well, that's, that actually works well because I don't think too many patent lawyers actually want to do trademark law, right? <laughs> uh, so uh, the last 50 to 60, so IP, so we have the 20th century, which ended in... 1999 or something, then the 21st century, no, 2000, 21st century, one. I see them as really two different eras, eras of 
of IP, a uh, more simple area where um, academics had an important role to play. You had uh, Nimron Copyright, McCarthy, Gilson on Trademarks, uh, Gilson on Trade Secrets, Chisholm mm -hmm. uh, on Patents. Um, When I clerked in the Second Circuit, if you had Nimmer and you had the Second Circuit decision, which basically was the, at that point, you had everything. Um, and uh, they were respected. And it, it, part of that may be because they were more into the real world than the academy. But now, now in the 21st century, um, what is your view of academics in a role in IP? Are they helpful? Are they in the academy on their own and therefore not useful? Is there things they could do that would be more useful? Well, uh, I clerked in the Second Circuit. The judge had a new issue. He said, go find out what the academics are saying. I don't think anyone says that today. Yeah, I, I mean, this is where I part a bit, Hugh. I, I, I think academics play continue to play an incredibly important role. I don't know if I'd say more important than before, but they play a very important role. We're now in an era where there are so many agendas and there's so much hyperbole uh, that we need people who, one, are stepping back and who are more objective, and two, who are more scholarly and thinking about things more from a policy viewpoint and a long-term viewpoint and in a historical context. And that's what um, academics do. And I think that, you know, you folks in, I won't say in the academy, but academics um, still do that extremely well. And I think we need it. At, we, we really need it a lot. Well, we yeah. need it. I, I think it also need it. But I think academics have to some degree more than previously become ideological. So rather than policy, it's an ideology that actually they adhere to. And if you divert from it, um, well almost a political correct ideology, uh, which mirrors to some extent the NGOs uh, and, and a skeptical view of IP. There are some academics who don't have a skeptical view of IP, but I'd say the majority of them do. And I think one reason is I came into copyright because at some point I was a creative wannabe. I wanted to be a novelist and almost everyone I knew was a singer or this or a composer or something they got into copyright. Now people come into copyright from the tech side and they see copyright as the ghost in the machine. Copyright is what stops these machines from being completely efficient and everything else. So both of us had different points of view. One is we were supportive in the old days of copyright. And I think a large degree academics are now skeptical uh, and because they come from the tech side. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. Um, and, uh, you know, at the risk of, of alienating some academics, I will just honestly say, I feel like the gravamen of academics are not really believers in the incentives of the intellectual property system. My sense has been that um, the, that, that, the training tends to be and tends to come from uh, a skepticism about property rights generally. And Absolutely. that flows right over into intellectual property. 
And so you, you know, you, most of the folks who are coming out of universities, and I even see this with the associates at my firm, they come in from these great law schools and they're very skeptical about intellectual property rights um, and the value of intellectual property. And I find myself almost having to lecture these new lawyers saying, hey, you know what? The people who are going to be paying for your salary aren't people who like giving things away for free. They're people who invest billions of dollars, like drug companies, that invest billions of dollars in trying to create new cures for important diseases. And when they do that, they have to make a return or they're not going to be in business anymore. And so you guys need to get used to the idea that you're now working for the good guys, the guys who are the creators and the risk takers, and they need an incentive system. So this whole give it away for free thing doesn't fly in the real world um, when you're trying to get paid to practice law. Yeah, well, even, even uh, I, I have a problem with calling it an incentive system. Well, that's what everyone's saying. It's really more Lockean property. As soon as, that's why the, the uh, copy left, and they call themselves the copy left, will never call it intellectual property because as soon as you use the word property, everyone realizes, oh, you're not supposed to be taking someone else's property. So you have to stay away from that term uh, and incent does this incentivize or not incentivize or whatever. Uh, and our whole history is not one of incentivization. Uh, look in copyright, what do we have? Five different rights. All you need is a reproduction right to give an incentive to someone to write a novel or another thing. You don't need display, performance, distribution, and all those others. You need those if it's property and there's a bundle of exclusive rights mm -hmm. around a raise or a thing. Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. the history is one of property and it's be re reformulated to one of incentivization. And if you look at the beginning, we had a federal copyright law in 1790. It protected things that were never protected before. Mm -hmm. So if there was going to be incentivization, it would have been prospective. Mm -hmm. They protected maps and charts that had not been protected in most places, completely not because incentivize them. They were already done, but because this was effort that went into it and it should be protected. Mm. And it was not incentivization because people were making maps and charts for years and years and years. So now you can disagree with that, but what I disagree with is people saying the historical framework is one of incentivization. If you want to say policy-wise, it should be fine, but don't say that's how we got where we are today. I hear you, Hugh, and, and I think that I would agree with the view that there are, um, you know, a set of policy bases for intellectual property, intellectual property, and one of them is, you know, reward system. Another one is an incentive system, and another one is, uh, you know, look, this is the fruits of imagination that becomes property of the person who creates it just like when you improve real property or create personal property and it needs to be respected. Well, the one that, that is closest to incentivization is probably patents because there's so much money that has to be invested. And those people are thinking, you know, yeah, we'll do this, but there's got to be some payoff, you know, uh, incentive to put that type of money in. And, and as you can see it now is thanks to the Supreme Court, we have uh, venture capitalists, uh, 
hedge funds and all putting the money in Europe and in Asia mm-hmm. rather than the U.S. in mm-hmm. terms of innovation and patents. Right. Yeah, that's what I refer to when I mention incentives. You know, capital in a place like New York or anywhere flows to where it can, where it's perceived to be able to return the best, provide the best returns for the investor. And if you decrease an investment incentive, you should expect that capital is going to move away from that investment. So we have decrease the incentive to invest in the risky work of creating new pharmaceuticals. That's the life sciences industry. We've decreased the incentives in other areas, including heavy algorithmic software like artificial intelligence. And we shouldn't be surprised that investment is moving elsewhere. All right. So last 50 to 60 years, Supreme Court report card, was there a period when you thought they were generally doing good stuff or were they always doing good stuff? Is it just recently you have disagreement with it? What is your view of Supreme Court law and IP? Well, um, so going back 50 years, not sure I remember everything that's been going on through that phase, but I would definitely agree you with the point that the court has had its ebbs and flows, if you will. And uh, just to sort of my view of my way of thinking about it is there are decisions at the interface between IP and antitrust that have tended to um, push antitrust to the sidelines and to, um, and to reserve it only for those instances of the most egregious abuse, price fixing, uh, horizontal collusion, those kinds of things. The um, per se violations. Yeah, the per, what we call the per se antitrust violations. I think those cases have been good. I think the cases that have tended to to make antitrust have more of a shadow over the intellectual property system, like we've seen some uh, more recently, are not good. They're not good for our country. They're not good for incenting, um, uh, uh, well, again, for incenting investments in, um, in innovation. And then if you move from there to the pure IP cases, um, in the patent area, mostly um, those cases that have uh, not just the ones that have expanded IP rights, but I would say some of the ones that have clarified IP rights have been good. I have no quarrel with the KSR decision, for instance. I thought that did a good job of somewhat raising the bar and clarifying the obviousness standard, very similar to the- Well, tell our, tell our listeners what the- that decision said. So the KSR case interceded in what, what the Europeans call the inventive step standard in most other countries, Asia too. Uh, and here in the US, we call the obviousness standard that says, uh, and the court said, look, um, for an invention to uh, overcome the obviousness hurdle, it uh, has to be um, more than just something where you can show that two or more specific references had a teaching suggestion or motivation specifically on their face to combine them. And it added, the Supreme Court added a little more flexibility to say that, um, that, uh, that new work can be obvious over what has come before. So it raised the bar on patentability, aligning our standard with the inventive step standard in, in Europe and Asia, I think roughly. And I thought that was a good decision. And I think there have been you know, some other decisions that have been um, constructive. The uh, venue limiting decision 
that came out. I forget whether that was last year. Um, that's dramatically shifted uh, venue back to uh, you know I think in a in a more broad based manner around the country. I think that was a perfectly fine decision and one that we struggled to get through legislatively. Yeah. Now, do you think the Supreme Court was just being okay? Let's talk about venue, or were they worried about what the Eastern District of uh, Texas? Uh, probably both. Yeah. To be fair, probably both. But then you go back to your question, you know, there have been some decisions that have been atrocious. The Lexmark decision, atrocious. In the copyright area, the Kirtsang decision. In which atro- one? Kirtsang. The um, Kirsten, yeah. international exhaustion. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. absolutely atrocious. Creating new limitations on U.S. interests that devalue intellectual property, that hamstring um, uh, companies from being able to do differential pricing, yeah, and that yeah. frankly hurt of developing country oh, absolutely. interests. I think Atrocious Robert's decision in Kirsten was a disaster, and they didn't even have five silent votes. He's changing something that had been in law forever. Right. Uh, and two votes of those, uh, Kagan and I think Alito, said we're only doing this because we think a precedent forced us to do it. And actually, Stevens' decision and Dicta said no. Right, it didn't. Actually, it doesn't. Yeah. Um, but the, all that dependence, usually you don't overrule. Whole industries were built around this. Right. And they just did it. And what upsets me about the current Supreme Court is they don't know much in areas, certain areas of law. They're arrogant about not having to, to really research it. They have no in, interest, it seems, in what the industry is doing. So... They they are almost academic in the worst sense of the world of what do we think sitting around would be a good way to do this yeah, yeah. and just implementing it. And that's a disaster for the real world. Um, so why do you think that what do you think is going on with the Supreme Court that we're getting these decisions? Well, I think in the patent area, we're seeing a continued backlash um, against what was viewed as a system that was too subject to abuse. Uh, and I think that that has made its way through the recent set of patent decisions um, in the life sciences area, you know, uh, Mayo kind of decisions, um, and in the information technology area, this is the Alice decision and the Bilski and, and that line of cases. And I think in both of those situations, both those lines of cases, the court seems to be um, skeptical about a strong IP system and about the role of intellectual property, and again, as an incentive system, if I can go back to that, and uh, feeling like it's distrustful of the federal circuit uh, distrustful, frankly, of the intellectual property bar and its advocacy, and wants to pull back on the uh, on the reach of the IP system, and uh, that is just seems like it's been a thread through all of those cases. Yeah, uh, you know, for what twenty twenty five years, the Supreme Court didn't take anything from um, either Court of Customs and Patents Appeals or the Federal Circuit. Uh, and I just thought, you know, whatever these people are doing seems to be all right. And it, it, and uh, at some point, I think 
maybe with the start of viewing, there were a lot of bad patents. And when you have new things like software and bio, there's going to be no prior art. So examiners have no way to knock stuff down. And you may end up with a lot of bad patents. And then there was a view, though, that the patent people were not going to correct it themselves. And as soon as that happened, you lose trust in that and lose trust in the federal circuit. They stepped in to save things. And the reality is I think they've done a pretty bad job. But do you think the federal circuit's done a, a – certainly after these decisions, the federal circuit has done a good job? Or have they been too – caving into them or whatever? Well, I think it's fair to say the federal circuit has been struggling. It's been struggling with an atrocious set of decisions, terrible, um, conflicting, irreconcilable decisions in the 101 area we're talking about now from the Supreme Court. So the federal circuit's been dealt a very, very difficult, in fact, an impossible hand to play with. I would say there, there are some decisions coming out of the federal circuit that I think have been good and even really very creative in trying to find ways to make sense of 101 and to move forward despite the overhang of the terrible Supreme Court precedent. But I think it's fair to say, and I think even the Federal Circuit judges would say they're struggling with the hand that they've been dealt. Yeah, I think they're struggling and they're divided. If uh, when having in bank and it was 6-5, the Supreme Court says, we better step yeah, in because do they do don't this? seem to be leading yeah. or, or something else. Yeah, yeah. There, uh, there are even you know camps in the federal circuit of judges who are much more on the side of skepticism about the yeah. value of strong IP rights, patent rights in particular, and you know judges on the other side who are believers in the value of the incentive system uh, and want to see it strengthened or you know redoubled again. Okay. Um, what would you say, well, then we're going to get into some more specifics in a minute, is the most important issue in IP today? Well, I think definitely 101. It's so foundational and it's so broken. And we're so quickly marginalizing uh, the value of our IP system uh, when it's you know quite clear that Patent protection for life sciences innovation and software innovation is available in both Europe and China, but clearly not available anymore in the U.S. That is not where we want to be. All right. So how, how can that be corrected? Is it do, do you envision the Supreme Court? I think to some extent the Supreme Court didn't realize. They tried to put all these limitations. We're not really doing this, but they ended up with something that caused a lot of harm. I'm not sure they even realized what the downside of that would be. Is it possible that they'll rethink it, or do we need the legislature, or is it lower courts fighting back, or how are we going to get out of what you consider to be a very bad spot? Now? Yeah, it's definitely not the lower courts fighting back. They're not in a good position to do that. And like I said, they're trying, and the PTO is doing its best but uh, they're not going to be able to solve the problem themselves. The Supreme Court, I mean, I'm an optimist, so I always hope the Supreme Court will come in and decide to fix things, and maybe they will. Um, as the news media picks up more and we see more results with this, you know, disinvestment in diagnostics as an example, um, maybe they will. 
But I think what's really needed, we can't sort of wait and just sit around and hope for that. Um, Congress needs to act and Congress needs to legislate on 101 and fix the, uh, the mess that we're in. You may be the only person who has hope for the Congress to solve this. <laughs> uh, what about, we'll get back to Congress in a second, what about the PTO? Is there anything the PTO can do in its rules and regulations or the way PTAB and other things operate? Well, there are some things they can do, some things they are doing, right? They have um, changed, they've put out a whole series of guidelines, guidance to examiners, which is good. They've trained examiners to try and keep examiners um, up on the leading edge of developments in the federal circuit. And I think all of that is good. Um, uh, and they can continue to put out new rules for examiners in the MPP as they revise it to update examiners' uh, guidance or uh, examination practices. Those are the things the PTO can do, and I think to their credit, they are doing. And you, I think we both agree that the new uh, director is, uh, looks like he's going to be very good. Yeah, do, uh, Andre's doing a great job and everything that he can to try and work with this uh, you know, fairly dysfunctional situation. And I think uh, you know uh, Huey's that Andre's made some comments uh, in speeches in public that, you know, he's concerned. I think he testified in front of Congress that he's concerned about Section 101, and it's very difficult for the uh, USPTO examiners to apply it. Well, I'm a little concerned that you think Congress can do it. Then people may be waiting for Congress to do it, to do it and I don't think Congress is capable of doing it. Uh, and I know Congress doesn't want to do it. They do not want to make policy, certainly in IP. Uh, they want basically three things. Do nothing, which they're very good at. Uh, codify solutions in industry. Um, or codify case law that they think is good, like the fair use doctrine. But in terms of coming up with a corrective approach... I just don't think the mechanism today is there for them to do it, but you do. Well, first of all, I don't disagree that it's hard, but I think uh, the makings of corrective legislation are already available. We now have the AIPLA and the IPO having converged on a single set of language that would amend 101, and it's not some excruciating piece of text. It's like a couple of paragraphs. It easily fits onto less than a single page, and it's comprehensible. Um, and I think they've collectively spent around seven years working on it, something like three and a half years each. So it's certainly very well considered. Um, now you've got the NYI PLA right here in, in New York signing on to that language. And I believe the NJ, New Jersey IP Law Association, might have signed on to it also, and other regional law IP law associations are looking at the language too, so that's helpful. You've got Congressman Massey, I believe, in a bill that I don't otherwise support, uh, but in a bill that he's either introduced or floated, I forget now, I think he might have introduced it, has, if I remember right, essentially the AIPLA IPO language in it to correct 101. So you've got you know, legislative vehicles beginning to come out. Um, I'm getting asked questions about it when I visit Capitol Hill. Staffers who five years ago didn't know what 101 was and three years ago would have said, um, we're not going to touch that. It's way too complicated. Now are saying, 
you know, we're hearing this is really broken. Is there some way to fix it? So I feel like a process is underway, very much like the process that led to the America Invents Act. Um, and it takes a long time, no question. Uh, and it's not without its challenges. But the makings are, number one, a huge problem. Well, we've got that. Number two, congressional understanding of the need to do something. That's on its way. Number three, something that we haven't had until now, which is leadership within the administration. And that's where Andre Yanku comes in and the recognition on his part, which he clearly has, that this is a problem. So the ingredients, I feel, Hugh, are beginning to come together to see, you know, potentially action in the next session of Congress. How important is the role of the president? Uh, Obama, I think, in his last four years, or maybe most presidents aren't interested in IP and don't do a lot for it. But I think especially in the last four years, more could have been done from the president and some of the things like uh, what the TPP and other things pushing that. Um, what about the president? I mean, uh, the executive, uh, even if it isn't a president, of course, you have the... P PTO as part of the executive, but I mean, really close to the White House. Is it any hope of getting those people interested? I think I think there is, and I think it is uh, to come to your question directly. It's really helpful. In fact, may even be required in the end for the White House to get involved and help push, particularly when things get close, if you will, in the red zone. You know, it takes the force of the White House to help push things, uh, you know, into the end zone. Now, the reason that this administration can be helpful is because there's a strong undercurrent coming back to something you mentioned before, Hugh, property rights. Intellectual property is about property. These are property rights. And we've got folks now, whether it's the Heritage Foundation, the Federalist Society, um, you know, conservative organizations that have sway with the administration that are huge believers in the importance of property rights and that recognize intellectual property as property rights. So that's, I think, you know, the, um, the vehicle that I think carries this issue and can get it real traction. What about uh, basic democracy, people writing in to their congressperson? Uh, uh, you know, when I was growing up, people said, you don't like the law, well then it's grassroots get the law changed, and we basically nobody does that anymore. They go to court. But is there any room for people to write in, and does that have any effect, do you think? I think, I think that's a great point and something that is really applicable right now. At this stage of the 101 process, getting more understanding in individual congressional offices out in Ohio where the Cleveland Clinic totally got ripped off out of their important patent position, um, you know, in the discovery behind uh, cardiovascular, the, the enzyme that predicts cardiovascular disease in North Carolina, in here in New York, in California, um, in New Orleans, everywhere that businesses are being hurt and that innovation is being starved of funding because of inability to get patent protection, that grassroots activism is needed and stories need to be coming up in, you know, the plain dealer in Cleveland and in uh, the local newspapers all over the country that talk about what's going on. That's what gets 
local congressional office is interested and starts to build co-sponsors for a legislative push. But now, Hugh, you're on to a really major point. Now is the time for that. It would have never been viable five years ago. And hopefully five years from now, there'll be enough traction that it won't be needed. Now is when that grassroots effort is needed in order to develop traction. All right. So you would agree with the proposition that there are great benefits in a strong patent system. Are there any drawbacks to a strong patent system? Oh, yeah, of course. I mean, we saw that um, in, as you say, towards the turn of the century and after the internet bubble burst and tens of thousands of, you know, really not very strong, very weak, actually, um, software, internet, and business method-related patents were unleashed, um, you know, untethered into the world. And it led to this run-up of abusive litigation. And that was not good for our country or for innovation or for consumers or for anything. So I think that was an example for us of a patent system that had become too easy to abuse. So to me, the issue isn't whether the patent is a strong right, like you say, a strong property right. It clearly should be a strong property right. The issue is abuse of the right. And we have abuse all over the place. It occurs. But you need laws that are strong enough and consequences that are strong enough to keep abuse down to a relatively low noise level. And that's what got out of control in the first, you know, whatever, five, 10 years of this uh, century. All right. Social media. Social media uh, has been basically anti-IP and uh, there was active, a bunch of also soap uh, things killed strictly. It was going to be passed strictly because of uh, people reaction to social media. The more votes out there, then there are the votes for it. Um, is social media, in your view, always going to be a problem or can it be used also effectively uh, to right some wrongs in uh, IP protection? Well, social media is, of, of course, um, the reality, right? It's a fact of life now, and we all deal with it. Um, I believe, like any media, it can be a force for good uh, and a vehicle to uh, disseminate information, to get views across, um, to ensure that people understand what's going on. Certainly, when you know, when I started at the PTO, the USPTO had no blog. It had no social media um, footprint. This was in, you know, 2009, right? Um, and that was, so those were in the early days. And, not, you know, people weren't using Twitter and, and uh, uh, um, Facebook as social media vehicles in those days. But blogs were starting. So we very quickly started a blog at the USPTO. And I remember vividly, I first went to commerce and asked whether there were any rules, because I certainly knew from my days at IBM, you know, that you go to the communications people and you coordinate something like that. And I was told, no, there's no, no rules. You know, you want to do a blog, fine, go do one. Later, they figured out that they needed rules. And the, and the federal government, during the time I was in the government, put um, a lot of structure in place around agencies blogging. But at the time, there was nothing. So we started up what was called the Director's Forum. And then we soon after that got social media presence on Facebook and you know Twitter and all the rest of them and started using those. And I viewed them as 
you know, a responsibility of a government agency to, um, uh, to make sure that uh, it's, it's using all channels of communication to get messages out and to make the public aware of what's really going on. Uh, so that's my view. It's really pretty neutral. It, it can be a, you know, a challenge and these things can be misused like any communication vehicle, but they certainly are important. Uh, we, we ignore them at our peril. And if we use them appropriately, they can be good. Well, the, the, the rhetoric, and I think you've mentioned this, uh, the, the rhetoric has been anti-IP and it's been normally prevailing. Um, well, one is because consumers are all users, so no IP, they're told, oh, you'll get this for free, you get the medicine cheaper. Um, it's an easy argument to make. Also, the people who are making those arguments in the NGOs and academics are clever at doing it. And on the opposite side, <laughs> I don't want this to sound negative, but you have patent people who've never had to explain anything to a lay person in an entire life and would never want to have to explain it to a lay person who wouldn't understand. Um, and corporations who are the most reticent people in the public arena uh, who should be out there saying we need this and that, but their PR or other people say, don't get out there because all it's going to do is cause trouble. So maybe you and others could get these corporations. To say, for instance, just in pharma, these lives were saved here and around the world for this patent. It took this amount of time to do it, this billions of dollars. We failed in this and this and this. We finally got it. Just an ad like that would be tremendously mm -hmm. valuable. Yeah, great points, Hugh. And, and not actually not that much for me to add because you've just said everything that I would have said about this really challenging topic. Uh, but, you know, I understand the precarious position that the research pharma industry is in. There's sort of, you know, no way you can make the case for yourself and not have it sound either self-serving or like you just want to charge more money. It's as you said, the consumers are all users of the system. They don't understand the huge investments and the amount of risk that's needed and the amount of failure involved. And the rest of us need to find ways to explain that. So it is indeed something that I try to work on as a sort of a, you know, commenter on the system that I can do this stuff pro bono. But this comes back to your point before, why I think academics play such an important role, because academics have credibility too as being neutral and can come in and comment on these issues and on the criticality of having a strong IP system. So I think I would agree there's a role for people like me to play. There's a role, frankly, for judges to play um, in their sort of neutral oversight position. There's a role for, uh, for elected officials to play. And I think some of them are very good. I was, for instance, with Jerry Nadler recently, our representative right here in Manhattan. He totally understands this stuff and is very practical about it. And other representatives are very good too. But there is a role for, for academics to play, you know, if you will, speaking truth to power about the need for um, a strong IP system. Well, there's some mistakes been made in a patent system that even if you're for patents, can be viewed as mistakes. So if you're looking at incentivization, business method patent makes no sense. They have to do the business method anyway, and yet you're getting patent protection for it, which 
is only going to mess up, you know, the marketplace. Yeah. So that's a really important point. And I was almost going to go into that a little earlier when you asked about, you know, the what happened over the last 50 years. Um, a, a big ditch we got into started um, with the State Street Bank decision out of the federal circuit. And that's what led us into this cul-de-sac. And the judge of that, the judge on that case, uh, he was remember. the dean of the patent bar from the CCPA. Um, and that's, you know, they the, the he overruled basically what silently the whole law. It wasn't in bank because he was 110 and still active and a wonderful person. Uh, and if actually there'd been a different judge doing that, that probably wouldn't have gotten where it did. So it's interesting how sometimes individuals can make a difference and maybe not the best difference. But by now you would think, why can't someone just say business method patents? I would think this would be easy to get Congress because it's the easiest thing there to say this makes no sense. Let's get rid of it. So it's interesting that you bring this up because um, this goes back to 101. Uh, there is a thread of reasoning on 101 and a thread that I have some empathy for that the right compromise in the end is to trade clarification to get rid of the abstract subject matter and right laws of nature garbage, if I can call it that, that has been become baggage on 101 in exchange for clarity uh, that a technological contribution standard is required. So this would be further alignment with the European and, and frankly, the Asian approach um, to solve the 101 conundrum. And I actually think that would be a practical and, a, and, and perfectly fine solution. I have long felt like the, for the reasons you give, Hugh, that getting into patenting of business methods departs from the incentive effect of the patent system. It enables patenting of problems rather than solutions to problems. It's got all kinds of um, issues associated with it. And Europeans have managed to avoid all of that with their technological contribution standard, which while hard to get established, they have managed to get established and made very stable over a period of years. Okay, let's go on another software patents. Uh, At one point in this country is viewed that you never get a software patent. So that's why copyright was the initial way to protect it, because they thought that software is incremental, so therefore it wouldn't be novel. And most of the things are going to be pretty obvious. Um, and even if that's the case, is you need a lot of different people doing it, and the exclusivity of the patent system doesn't really work for that. But yet, we have it now. Are you, do you see any problem with software patents? No problem at all. I see um, what I, I call them software implemented inventions because um, any invention that can be implemented in software can also be implemented in hardware. And it happens all the time with ASICs, application specific integrated circuits, and other devices now that initially will, or and sometimes even analog circuitry. Um, or specially designed, custom designed devices that will implement algorithms initially. And then later those algorithms as processing speeds and memory improve will be re-implemented in software running on general purpose computers. And then later they'll be re-implemented a third time on ASICs. 
So at the end of the day, software is just a language. It's like French. It's like Chinese. It's a language. We don't say, you know, you can submit. Well, actually, up. it's it is like language because I could never do Chinese or probably even French <laughs> or software. Or something. There's another good reason. So we don't discriminate against patents filed in German. You could file them in any language. It's the same thing with software. The issue is and needs to be the inventiveness of the underlying algorithm. And the problem that we've had is that we've had we've struggled over the years, but we've gotten a lot better at this of getting to the nut of the algorithm and comparing it accurately with the prior art. And as we got better at doing that, and I think we're generally there at this point, you're able to distinguish those software implemented inventions that should be patentable from those that shouldn't. All right, one more, bio, uh, which was obviously brand new and uh, not now, but was at the time. Has that gone the way it should? Is there any problems with that or is that perfectly in, in good shape now? Well, if you're referring to the BPCIA, um, the what? The biological protection, the biological um, innovation protection act that's led to a well, whole. I'm, I'm referring to the Supreme Court's the decisions that actually said you can protect. Oh, bio. Not good. Wait. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> so the BPCIA has been fine. Um, that was essentially part of the Obamacare, if you will, or the Affordable Care Act that created a new challenge system. It's kind of like um, Hatch-Waxman for biologics, right? And it includes this patent dance and a lot of complicated um, interlock for biologics that's gradually getting sorted out. And I think the bio industry is figuring out how to use it generally in a constructive way. All right. So is biologics pretty much the whole area that that's covered by... Uh, protection of biological? Right, yeah, okay. as opposed to, you know, small molecules that are covered by Hatch-Waxman. So that, I think, is working well. What is not working well at all, again, is the Supreme Court precedent that has sent the message that discoveries are unpatentable. That is insane. It's absolutely um, uh, catastrophic for um, for drug research, and for life sciences-related innovation. And it hurts biologics a lot. It hurts other things also. But the reason it hurts biologics so much is because in that area and, you know, the whole genetic-based um, uh, uh, life sciences thing, CRISPR-Cas9, and that whole field that's been based on genetic discovery, is because in the world of biologics, you're in the world of personalized medicine. And in the world of personalized medicine, um, there's much more action in diagnosis, in figuring out exactly how a person's DNA makes them um, more susceptible to a certain ailment, more uh, uh, able to accept a certain kind of treatment, um, more likely to have a reaction to a certain kind of treatment. That's all about diagnosis. Um, and, it's, and, and so the whole field of diagnosis that's been wiped out by the Supreme Court decisions takes the legs out from under the research that needs to be done um, appurtenant to the biologics industry. And then the second problem in the world of personalized medicine is that so much is about discovery. In other words, discovery of correlations. These 
molecules, uh, genetic um, uh, uh, materials are all available in nature. They exist already, just like everything around us. The issue is discovering which little sequence, which little genetic sequence, or which modification of a genetic sequence, or which biologic correlates to some human condition and treats some human condition. And so on the back of this, frankly, dumb notion that discovering things that exist in nature just isn't important anymore or shouldn't be protectable, right, that, that would wipe out, had it existed, had this doctrine existed in the past, it would have wiped out so much that we patented and enjoyed um, in the past. Think penicillin, aspirin, on and on and on. Now we've wiped out the field of discovery, and therefore there's absolutely no incentive to go out and figure out all of these intricate correlations that will be so much a part of it. Well, and also the irony is an article on Section 8 protects writings and discoveries. Yeah, it's right in... It's It's in the Constitution. It's right there in the Constitution, but we've written it out of the law. Yeah, it's it's, It's insane. It's it's very strange. Um, All right. Uh, We're getting near the end, right? This is this is three hours by now, <laughs> uh, but it's good stuff. For the record, you and, and I are still wide awake, but yes, everyone else in the room is yes, asleep. asleep. Uh, and you know the people are getting this for free, which which is I'm, I'm against. But there's no way we can monetize <laughs> this thing. Uh, all right, in terms of efficient infringement, why don't you discuss that a little bit? Okay, yeah, happy to talk about that. That's an unfortunate um, development that um, tries to put a happy face on just stealing. Um, and I don't think stealing's okay. Um, it says that, uh, uh, you know, if you're big enough and you're rich enough, um, and, and if you can succeed in devaluing the IP system enough, and that has happened, you can just essentially walk into someone else's apartment and sit on their sofa um, and use their stuff. And when they come in and say, hey, you know, well, what's going on here? Um, You can say, well, you know, uh, go kick me out if you want to, uh, but that's the best you're gonna be able to do. And until then, I'm just gonna enjoy your couch and, you know, uh, and uh, raid your fridge. So um, it is a a very unhealthy development. It's uh, irresponsible. Um, to have championed that in the first place um, and uh, to have um, have attempted to dismiss um, uh, willful infringement uh, as anything other than stealing. Uh, and I, I think it's, uh, you know, another uh, bad accoutrement of a really unfortunate situation we have in, now in the IP world. Yeah, and there's one more. I mean, efficient infringement is efficient because of PTAB and all the times that you go through that and actually multiple times. Uh, so the patent owner, uh, just to protect, is going to be paying a whole lot of money. And yeah, okay, good. Uh, I have a question from uh, one of our team members. Internet of Things and the Standard Essential Patents um, do they go together? IOT. Um, and S- IOT and SEPs. Uh, so <clears throat> I would say yes. Um, the Internet of Things 
uh, is about billions of connected devices. You know, I was with someone just last week who was saying that um, something like 70% of all connected devices are being deployed in China right now, something like 150 million so far this year. These are things, think like smart cities. So it's light bulbs in street lights that um, understand that in the middle of the night, there's no one on the streets and they turn the street lights down or off until there's activity on the streets and then they start automatically sequencing, turning the lights back on so that it's safe for people. Really interesting smart city kind of stuff. Huge deployments of IoT going on in China. But if you think about IoT, IoT happens on the back of standards, particularly 5G and the revolution that's coming with 5G. Now, it's already, IoT is already being deployed on 4G LTE, but that was also heavily standards. All standard essential patents be, be behind the 4G mobile telecommunications standard. 5G, even more so, heavily standardized from the very beginning. It's great. We're going to be able to have one 5G phone. It'll work anywhere in the world. All of our other devices will work anywhere in the world. It's fantastic. Benefit for consumers. Huge um, efficiencies and economies of scale. Wonderful ecosystems. All on the back of standard essential patents that will enable a manufacturer of an IoT device. Like, how about this? Um a device that'll go on pharmaceutical products um, at the point of manufacture that will be transmitting data at each waypoint as they move through the supply chain so that you'll be able to know if it got too hot in the container. You'll be able to know if it got too cold. You'll be able to know if the container was open and someone took stuff out and put different stuff in. Really great. That only works, though, if those IoT devices are communicating when the container starts its journey in New Jersey and ends its journey in Shenzhen, China, or wherever. So really important, great to have standards, super critical to have standards because they enable globalization for, uh, for a technology, the IoT, that is inherently global in nature. And it all happens on the back of 5G. Okay, all right. All right, Dave, the final question. Just a little bit with regard to Europe. Um, I think you said that Europe has recently been demonstrating a good balance in starting to articulate policies that promote strong IP rights and dynamic competition. Um, what are these that they're doing and why do you think they're doing it? Yeah, so Hugh, there I'm referring to a number of things, including... Um, the decisions of the European Court of Justice uh, and the decisions of the German courts and the British courts uh, at this interface between standard essential patents and competition law, um, the, the uh, rights of implementers to use standards and the rights of innovators to have a uh, reasonable compensation for use of their standard essential patents by implementers. And it really was you know, the ECJ that first put out the decision several years ago, uh, Dave, the European Court of Dave, Justice. 
It's a CJEU now, please. Oh, okay. You Sorry about that. don't say ECJ yeah. anymore. Yeah. But that shows how long he's been in a business because it used to be ECJ, yeah. Um, and, and so you got good decision from the CJEU that says um, that innovators have rights too. And when an innovator puts out a reasonable friend offer, the implementer is required to respond in a reasonable period of time with a reasonable counteroffer. And that then led to a cascade, I think, of constructive thinking, with the German courts picking up on that quickly in a series of cases. Um, uh, 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 Justice Bierce's decision, uh, Justice Burse's decision, sorry, uh, um, taking that even further. And then even most recently, the JPO, uh, J Japan Patent Office, in SEP guide document that they came out with also have uh, picked up on, and I think it's fair to say championed this the sense of balance that's needed uh, between the innovators and the implementers. And so that was a start of it that where I, I think the, uh, the Europeans really took a constructive view, but there's actually more. Um, and, and what I'm referring to is the role that Etsy has played um, the European Standard Association vis-a-vis <laughs> -vis, um, the uh, What does ETSI stand for? ETSI, um, European Technical Standards Institute, yeah, something, maybe, like, something that, like, yeah. like that. Yeah, I think that's pretty close. Um, and so when IEEE went down the very unfortunate road of deciding that it was going to put its finger on the scale in favor of implementers, and tell innovators, we don't really care about you anymore. You're talking about Etsy now. No, I'm talking about IEEE, the oh, U.S. Oh, okay. standards body, and, and passed through changes that were very clearly directed against innovators and to um, take value out of the intellectual property system and value out of innovation incentives for innovations that go into patents, um, that, that go into patents, that go into standards. Etsy could have followed that approach, but it didn't. It very affirmatively determined, we're not going to do that. We are going to retain strong incentives and retain a sense of balance so that both innovators and implementers can, um, uh, can succeed in the ecosystems that our standards created. That was a watershed event, I think. When was that? Oh, now probably four years ago or so. And it's only in this new administration, not so new anymore, that you've seen Mekin Delrahim, the chief of the antitrust division of the DOJ, coming out and really coming to grips with what's happened to tilt um, standard setting um, away from and to disadvantage innovators. And Mekin Delrahim coming out with a number of speeches that have said, we are concerned. The, D, the DOJ under this administration is concerned about situations where standards bodies tilt the playing field, um, where they enable and permit implementers to um, work together and disadvantage um, uh, intellectual property rights. And that, that is clearly a set of statements that, that's directed on what's happened in the U.S. and is juxtaposed against the much more constructive approach that the Europeans have taken. What's interesting about Etsy is because uh, in the 90s, when I started getting interested in what Europe was doing, they actually took the position that a standard should not have any IP protection. 
because it's so essential to everybody. So they've come a long way, which shows that things can change for yeah. uh, positive. Anyway, thank you so much, Dave. It's yeah, been great pleasure. having you. It's yeah, been, my pleasure. Uh, great to see you, Hugh. We had great, great discussion. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Non-Obvious with Hugh Hansen. Make sure to subscribe to us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play, or visit our website at nonobviouspodcast.com. Stay tuned for a preview of our next episode, my conversation with Stan McCoy, the president and managing director of the Motion Picture Association, EMEA Region. I think it's certainly a very complicated situation, certainly very difficult to do major IP-only treaties for exactly the reasons you said. I don't think the, uh, I don't think the environment is right at uh, WIPO, and I don't think the case has been made that there's a burning need to do a major new uh, IP treaty. If the circumstances change and the burning need for one emerges, maybe things will be uh, different, but, uh, but there is uh, there, 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 there does come a point in time where you say, okay, we've, we've laid out the meets and bounds of the garden. Now we need to till the garden and, uh, and, uh, uh, and, and do our jobs. And I think both on, uh, uh, both on IP and on trade, you can make a case that we have a pretty good infrastructure of, uh, WIPO agreements and WTO agreements. Uh, and we would really benefit from a period of time of just making them work properly and tending the garden that's out there. Uh, 